Hey, Northwest Arkansas, welcome back to another episode of Hey Hey NWA, where we have a special episode today about Lent. Very special. Very special. Um, We here on Hey Hey NWA, are we like to feature more religious organizations, um, and not the common ones. And so we uh, decided to do a Lenten episode this time mm-hmm. with... Good Shepherd Lutheran's very own Pastor Clint. Now, we, in this episode, don't necessarily only talk about Lent, but we do get to talk about community involvement, political engagement, and the like, which is a turn that this conversation took that I really enjoyed. Yeah, and I think uh, it was a turn that I wasn't expecting to come out of this conversation. Um, When we started thinking, like, let's do an episode around... Ash Wednesday, beginning of Lent, about Lent, um, kind of understanding it for its history and all these sorts of things. I wasn't expecting expecting it to take this political turn. And when I say political, I guess Pastor Clint gave me a new way of imagining politics, um, which you'll hear all about. Um, it's not as abrasive and, and divisive as like the term politics brings up in my mind normally. Um, so listen up for that. I will say the, the reason that I wanted to have Pastor Clint on um, in terms of talking about Lent versus other people that are probably just as informed, if maybe not more informed, about Lent um, than him was because, um, Peyton and I both attended a concert at Good Shepherd Lutheran back in December that featured the Northwest Arkansas men's chorus who we have friends here, a part of, um, and it, the men's chorus is a predominantly gay men's chorus in Northwest Arkansas, um, formed around and having conversations about, like the gay experience of men. Um, and so for this Christian church, this Lutheran church to be hosting that event, like really made me kind of perk up and kind of pose the question, like, why is this going on here? And, and hence kind of how we got into the conversation of politics, but also this is why I wanted to talk to him about the work they were doing because, they were connected with that, and as it turns out, they're connected with a whole lot of other organizations that do good work in our area. Well, in that specific type of progressivism isn't really that common around here, mm-hmm. um, especially in uh, Christian religious organizations. And so, yeah, I agree with you that uh, Good Shepherd Lutheran is definitely kind of stands out in the, the landscape of Christian religious organizations around here, just, um, just in how different they are. Yeah. So, um, this episode was really interesting. Uh, it turns out that me and pastor Clint have a little more in common than I formerly thought. Um, if you hear any references to dungeons and dragons during the episode, it's because, uh, pastor Clint and I both play dungeons and dragons, um, in our free time. There's a little 
curtain peeled back for you if you are interested in see the sad man behind the curtain <laughs> the sad man Zach. sitting in his sweatpants on the internet eating fast food and playing dungeons and dragons and that is my own particular experience that is not a projection i don't know i'm gonna venture people. to say you're not the only one so <laughs> there's probably a whole host of zacks and sweatpants playing dungeons and dragons behind the internet so yeah. you're not alone my friend it's not me i'm not joining you but uh, i just wanted to affirm you may- a little bit maybe. maybe one day maybe one day no gee i'm not against it it's just like you sound like you are against it i do sound like i'm against it but i'm really not i'm just don't want to spend my time in that way sure. i'm curious about it it would be like a hey let's try it once and then be like okay i've done it now i can talk about it on a podcast and do something else and then go on with my life we should move on from dungeons and dragons in this format um, and remind you that at the end of the episode, uh, after the interview, we're going to have another Ozark superstition. Um, and it's about spring and the coming of spring um, with some fun superstition and controversy. Not the devil. Not the, not that you know of. Oh, no. Here we go. So stick around <laughs> for a very devil-themed Ozark superstition. Uh, or maybe not. Um So hang out for the end of the episode, because that'll be good. Uh, And we will see you then. Enjoy Pastor Clint. Hey, Northwest Arkansas. Welcome to another episode of Hey, Hey, NWA. We are sitting around this roundtable with Pastor Clint of Good Shepherd Lutheran. How are you doing? Very good. Awesome. Yeah, we're meeting on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m., so... We're all a little, we're all a little tired, but welcome to my round table. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the earliest we've ever recorded an episode. Sure. So if we're not, yeah, that was less of a commentary on you and more of a commentary yeah. on us. Wow, yeah. So we'll see how this goes. Um, looking forward to it. My kids have already been up for an hour and a half playing Roblox, so it's like, man, how old are your kids? Uh, twelve, nine, and seven. Okay, man. Well, okay, so. Listeners, we were talking uh, to Clint before we got started about his kids wanting to do a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was, I was thinking about this conversation before we got here. I was thinking, man, those are some ambitious kids because I don't know any kid that wants to get up before 10 a.m. on a Saturday, especially to play Dungeons and Dragons of all things. Because um, most Saturdays at 10 a.m., I was probably still asleep in middle school junior high high school um and to get up to do that with my friends i would would definitely put it off to like three o'clock in the afternoon Mm -hmm. but i guess since you're involved it uh is probably a little more time sensitive well no it's just that they're still not quite old enough where that whole sleeping in thing has kicked in Uh you know they're the oldest are in sixth grade i'm totally anticipating sleeping in children (laughs) by the time they're like eighth grade or something you know uh-huh. well, you've set that expectation yeah <laughs> but anyway so we wanted to sit around the table with you um, to talk a little bit about the season of lent coming up so could you give a broad definition of what lent is and how it fits into i guess the church calendar and even what is the church calendar yeah so yeah the right so there is a church calendar um and one of the easiest ways to think about this is to say, at least in some traditions, in the same way that we mark time like every day by hours and every week by days, and that there's ways of doing like prayer 
and worship that's marked around those time frames, you know, like the daily prayer offices or weekly worship, there's also a structure for observing the whole year. And um, it takes more explaining or even like a chart to explain all the different parts of one year's worth of the seasons. Um, but the big ones are you have a, a lead up season to Christmas called Advent. You have a season after Christmas that's kind of like the light of Christ or the coming of the wise men type thing, which is Epiphany. And then a downtime, like what they call green or ordinary time. And then you have an, the next big season, which is always in the um, spring, though it moves, unlike Christmas, you know, where Christmas is always the same day. Easter is a mobile holiday based on the lunar calendar. Hmm. Of course, that makes sense that you would connect a Christian religious tradition to the phases of the moon, right? As uh, most Christians <laughs> follow. Right. Uh, but anyway, that's why it's it, uh, scheduled that way is that it's it's based on the, the phases of the moon. And so the start of this season has a, <laughs> it's like a range, you know, it could be, I think, as early as February 9th and as late as like beginning of March and then Easter is 40 days after that. So Lent is the season that you observe that's a lead up to Holy Week and Easter. So it's um, a period of time. Um, it ends up being five Sundays um, plus the special holidays that are around those five Sundays. So it kicks off with Ash Wednesday, which is a midweek service where you uh, receive a sign of the cross on your forehead with ashes and remember that you have come from dust and that you're going to return to dust. And then you have this entire kind of like, well, you might call it like a penitential season, a season of repentance. And, and um, there's a lot of other words that people will use, recipients, you know, the sense of like transforming or being renewed. And then you journey through that whole season, and it leads to Holy Week. And then Holy Week, and this is what's kind of cool about this, I think, is it condenses time and expands it. So unlike the rest of the year where you have the one Sunday service and you're just doing these weeks, on Holy Week, because it's such the central thing of the Christian faith, you have multiple worship services, uh, some traditions even every day. Ours is... Um, especially Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you have you end up having four worship services in one week. It's like you took a whole month and condensed it into a week. And it's that's all mapped to how central that is within Scripture itself, where the death and resurrection of Jesus takes up so much space in the Scripture. Hmm. What does, as far as... Lent goes, how does a daily practice work into that? Because I think most mm -hmm. people understand Lent to be like, oh, I give up alcohol or red meat or something like that. And that's like the cultural understanding of Lent. Um, right. But I, and I didn't grow up in like, um, like a liturgical tradition of any sort. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious how a practice, you know, what is the way you delineate this time from other times of the year um, other than maybe penance, as you said, I guess. There are a whole bunch of practices that kind of come along with this season that make it 
special. Um, the core ones, the ones that we will announce at the Ash Wednesday service and say that we're committing ourselves throughout the Lenten season are fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Okay. So you kind of just announce that to everybody. Now, how people live that out may vary. And uh, we are enough in the Protestant tradition that there isn't a lot of legalism around this. It's, you know, there's no sense of like, you have to do these things to be a good Lutheran or whatever. But there are traditions where it's like very much, you know, almost more of like a legal expectation. You will not eat meat on Friday and you won't, you know, do these set of things. But the three practices that center us are fasting. So um, the most common way that people do that, and this comes out of Roman Catholic developments in the 20th century, is uh, no meat on Friday. That's the That would be the largest group of Christians probably do that, along with um, maybe giving up, like, say, fat for the season or something like that. Uh, Lutherans tend to just kind of be among more of the cultural Christians who do something for Lent, like they might give up chocolate or they might, you know, give up um, some other thing that they think that they shouldn't be consuming. And that's how they do fasting. But you could also fast really, like you could pick a day of the week and not eat and mm-hmm. and devote that time to prayer. Um, and then one of the things that fasting does is it makes room for these other things on some levels. So almsgiving, giving, that's the traditional giving to the poor. So, uh, you know, maybe take the money you would have spent on the food that you were going to eat the day that you fasted and give it to a world hunger organization. Or you could do what many people have historically done, which is just literally give it to somebody who's poor. You know, you, mm. you know somebody who doesn't have as much or isn't able to afford a meal or housing, and you just literally support them. Um, so, again, there's no rules around that. You could give it to a world hunger organization or you could give it to the guy at the corner. But the point would be to give alms to the poor and make that commitment. And then the third one is um, prayer. So to adopt some kind of prayer commitment that's deeper or more intentional than maybe what you've been doing habitually up until the season begins. Um, probably with the hope that if you do it throughout that season, you might keep doing it too. Hmm. Um, and some examples of ways people do that. A lot of traditions will publish a special little like 40-day devotional book. So every day you take out your Lenten devotional and you read the devotion for that day. Or some people will just commit to, um, you know, some kind of private or individual practice of prayer. Gotcha. So it's because there are, you know, no specific rules on it, how do you take those and how do you interpret those and what do what does it look like for you mm-hmm. um as you observe lent well for me um this year i'm going to do one thing i'm going to do is the same thing as i did last year i'm going to give up uh meat and fried food uh which i found to be a really useful discipline i did it last year too and it was both good in the sense that i don't need to eat those things and it's kind of like actually good for me to give those up and it matches what is called for in the season anyway. You know, like before they thought of things like heart disease and cholesterol and high blood pressure and whatever, they still were giving up meat and fatty things during the, the season. So it still matches that. Um, and the thing that happened additionally that was cool when I did that last year was I developed a real spiritual relationship with the foods I would eat instead of those hmm. fatty foods. I don't know if spiritual relationship is the right thing, but man... I grew to really love grapefruit. 
<laughs> uh, which I still love because you, you know when you give up some things, you have to have the things that are going to come in to be in their place. Right. You know, you still have to eat. Um, and so it was kind of cool to ha- develop this thing of like, wow, I'm I'm really growing to love almonds or grapefruit or whatever. Uh, so th- that's a practice I engage in. And then really a lot of the rest of my practice around this season is stuff that I do within the congregation. So we have mm-hmm. the weekly, we do a weekly service during Lent on Wednesday nights that it's an evening prayer service. When um, we sing this musical setting called Hold an Evening Prayer, we have a soup supper and then the prayer service on a Wednesday night. And then after the uh, prayer service this year, we have a uh, a woman in our congregation who is going to be leading a discussion around what's this this um, this is new for us, but it's going to be really neat. She's exploring what you call inner work. So we're a very outward work congregation as a whole. Like if you've heard about Good Shepherd, you've heard because you know you've probably heard of us because we started Canopy Northwest Arkansas Refugee Resettlement Agency. Somebody in our congregation started the little free pantry over there on the street, and they're now all over the world. And we have people that work in nonprofits throughout the community, and we have this very outward, like, social ministry face. But we also know that Jesus would do those kinds of things, like heal or um, cure or whatever, and then he would go away to pray. And he he worked on the landscape of his inner life with God as a strength or as a you know a thing to balance that outward work mm-hmm. and so she's going to be leading us in these sessions around inner work um and so it's she's got a book that she has this reading it's focusing on the parables of jesus and the relationship between inner and outer work and mm-hmm. so we'll have those discussions on wednesday nights and i'm going to participate in those gotcha and then finally the big thing for us and this probably takes up the majority of my time during lent is Lent is also the season for for new, newcomers to the Christian faith to prepare for baptism or affirmation of baptism if they were baptized at some other time but are new to this faith community. And so we've got this group of about 60 folks who are new to Good Shepherd this year, and some of them will be baptized and some will affirm their baptism. And we have a supper on Sunday evenings, and we eat together and uh, do Bible study together and, and do these different topics, introducing Christian faith or the way we think about Christian faith to that group of people and they're all matched with sponsors within the congregation and so they're journeying through the season kind of like a cate- like a catechism if you will and they'll be either baptized or from their baptism at the Easter vigil on Holy Week. Gotcha. Now is that specific to the Lutheran tradition or is that just um, generally um, liturgical traditions typically adopt that style or is that just something Good Shepherd is doing. So it's a really ancient practice. It came out of the early church. Uh, the Easter, like the catechumenate and the Easter vigil are both, uh, you can trace them all the way back to like the first century. And what are those? Um, I have no idea. Yeah, what they, no, I know. They're, they're re- so the reason you don't know is because um, they are the kinds of things that went into disuse to a certain degree within Christianity and are being reclaimed on some levels with okay. like liturgical renewal. If you had grown up or had been involved in a Roman Catholic parish throughout your life, you probably would have heard of this as rites of Christian initiation for adults, R- RCIA. Okay. 
And they probably are the community that practices the catechumenate the most intentionally and hasn't lost it as much as some other communities have. But um, any churches, and Lutherans are among these, who have participated in kind of the liturgical renewal movement of the last century, have considered, one of the things they've considered it kind of like adding back in has been stuff around the catechumenate. So the catechumenate is just the way that you make new Christians. Okay. Okay. Right? And that's the simplest definition. And um, it, it, historically, in the ancient church, it was a very long process because you were talking about a very, very small church with a big, dominant, non-Christian religion, uh, people with all kinds of like pagan religion you know, religious commitments or whatever. So they had this way that was like a three-year-long process of preparation, study, memorization, new practices, new life. And then finally at Lent, really standing up and saying, I'm making this commitment and I will be baptized. And then, and then the bishop would come around to the different dioceses and get them baptized around Easter or on the Easter vigil. And um, we started doing this here at Good Shepherd. Most Good Shepherd people wouldn't have heard of either the Catechumenate or the Easter Vigil, like, say, 10 years ago, because it just wasn't a big... Uh, Holy Week is more just Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. Uh, but we, what we found, but this is this started happening about six years ago. I've been here seven. So about six, five years ago, somewhere in there, we started having more and more people coming to our church that either had no history with Lutheranism, or actually even many adults who didn't have much history with Christianity at all. So the traditional new member class where you were transferring a Lutheran from Iowa who'd moved down to Northwest Arkansas didn't make a lot of sense to them because mm. they didn't have that background in history of like what Lutheranism even is. And they were attracted to Good Shepherd for other reasons. Although they were intrigued by Lutheranism, they didn't really have any idea what Lutheranism was. They were more connected to our, like, you know, I, I, like, I would guess I would call us a social gospel church. You know, like that somewhere in there in the mix, we're a progressive Christian church. And um, that's why they showed up here. And so then now they're here and they have these questions like, well, okay, how does that connect to it's called a Lutheran church? And why do you, ha- why do you believe this when... 90% of the other churches around have a different perspective on X, Y, or Z than you do. Mm-hmm. And so it gives us this space. We actually start the catechumen in the fall. It's more informal and inquiry, you know, like just space for people to ask questions and less regular. But then at Lent, everybody that's going to start this walk through Lent to the Easter Vigil is going to stand up. It'll happen this this Sunday, actually, tomorrow. We do this rite of welcome and the congregation will welcome them. They'll say that they're going to commit to this journey throughout the Lenten season. Um, we do this really cool blessing, actually, that comes out of the catechumenal tradition. You, um, The sponsors of the people that are new will come up to them on Sunday morning, and we do this blessing, and they bless them by making the sign of the cross on their forehead, their eyes, their mouth, their shoulders, their hands, their heart, and their feet. And there's a little like spoken blessing that you do for each one of those hmm. things, you know, just to kind of like the whole person mm-hmm. being welcomed and blessed into this process. And then they'll participate in those Sunday nights 
and then at the Easter vigil, um, that's where we'll do the baptisms and the affirmation of baptism. Gotcha. You were, I don't want to jump so far back, um, but you're talking about this woman coming to speak on the inner work and hearing you talk about being an outward facing community. A lot of times, um, having conversations about how we develop the self or our inner person, um, is fascinating as it pertains to Lent, because if I understand correctly, Lent is related to Jesus's 40 days in the desert when Jesus himself removes himself from an outward facing anything to be with, well, Jesus, you know, Mm -hmm. he's by himself, um, in the desert. So I think it's, and that may be completely intentional on y'all's part, but it's, I think it's really fascinating when you start, um, the, the synchronous, not synchronicity, but like the relationship between developing the self and also season of Lent being, uh, reminiscent of a Jesus who is alone in the desert. Um, before he begins whatever it is that he does when he returns from the desert. Um, I think it's a fascinating pairing, which like I said, may totally be intentional. I have no idea, but well, it probably is, uh, there, there 40 is recapitulated in the scriptures multiple times. So you have the, the 40 years of the wilderness wandering too. It's probably one of the reasons we call Lent a journey. Okay. Uh, because the you know the, the Israelites were on that forty uh, year journey through the wilderness from uh, Pharaoh's land to the promised land, as it were, right? And then you have right the forty days of uh, um, Jesus's time in the desert. Uh, in terms of story, like the the way that the scriptures are read and what we focus on during Lent. That one doesn't necessarily come up because we focus on that one more at the beginning of the church year, like Jesus is commissioning into his ministry. Okay. You know, but the obviously the fact that he fasts in the desert and prays is uh, um, clearly connected to the theme of the 40 days and the, and Lent. So yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Hmm. You made me start thinking who else is out there in the desert with him? Um, there's like, you're right. It's just Jesus with Jesus. And then the angels come attend to him after the 40 days are over. Right. But right. Yeah. It's pretty, you can discover a lot, a lot about your inner landscape when you're alone like that for so long. I think it's, uh, well, listening to, uh, kind of good shepherds background and, um, you guys are more, um, like outward facing and all this. And it, it, it's almost funny to me that, you know, you have to take the active time to do some inner work because, um, I would say most faith communities are more about like the inner work and, um, like maybe have trouble with the outer work or, um, but definitely inner work is more of a priority, I guess. And I guess, could you explain where the emphasis to be outward comes from, whether it's specific to, Good Shepherd or in the Lutheran tradition overall? Mm. That's a, well, a lot of people are wondering about this particular topic, actually. Um, the There seems to be an increased commitment of late in at least some parts of the American, North American church to think about what it means to be like public church. 
And um, I was reading a, a I, I was working on a review actually of this book by Bruce um, Reyes Vaughn um, for the Christian Century the other day. And he wrote this book about um, pastoral, the care of the soul in a neoliberal age. So like, what does it look like to do pastoral care in the kind of economic and political context that we live in today? And one of the things he points out is that that call to do public church or to be public church, which you can see more and more. You can, I mean, you can see it a lot of different places. You can see like a magazine like Sojourners, you know, Brian McLaren, um, different kinds of people who really are committing to a public voice of the church in the, in the, in the, in our civic life, in our public life, um, that the call for that is happening precisely at the time when on another level, you could say that the public is declining, like, you know, the, where, where, where are these public spaces? And is there a, is there a public space? Because we're struggling right now with like partisanship and, is anybody actually talking to each other or did they just talking at each other and you mm -hmm. know, all this kind of thing? Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a bit of a puzzle as to why maybe that new focus is there within the church. Um, but I think, I think back to, so one, one time I was sitting here at this table and I was talking to a group of men in my congregation who grew up in the Lutheran church and they're all like in their 60s and their 70s now. So they lived through really big moments in American history, like the Civil Rights Movement, Vietnam War, and there's all these different, like, huge moral, political moments. And through all of those, they couldn't remember or recollect their church or their leadership having anything to say about what was going on at the national level about mm. like say inclusion of African Americans or the problem with the war economy or you know anything at all um, that the church that they grew up in for better or worse was much more of kind of like a social club it was for the members it was we celebrate that we love Jesus here in this community and it was kind of detached from all that kind of stuff and they were, it was interesting to hear them talk because it was like they were kind of startled to dis, to discover as they were saying that, that 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 was true. They hadn't really thought about that before, how quiet the church had been around all of these things that really were super important that were going on in the world. And then there was really some grief of like, oh my gosh, you know, why didn't we have more to do or say? And you, if you go back and you look at that period and you, and you hear, it wasn't even just the, like, for example, civil rights. It wasn't just that the white churches were primarily quiet around the issue of civil rights. It was that, you know, Martin Luther King talked about how he had to drag the black church kicking and screaming into the civil rights movement. Even many of African-American congregations didn't really want to go public and have these public stances and actions. So I don't understand where that comes from culturally, honestly. I, I, it seems to be endemic. It seems to be the norm within Christianity. And I can't find it when I read the Bible that that's the way Christianity should be at all. Like zero, nada. 
when you go and you read the Bible and you read the Gospels, Jesus is immediately getting in trouble with the political authorities and the religious authorities. Almost everything he does is being done in town or where there's a crowd. And it's, it's, it's always like, he, it's not like he, like in a really good, good example, he, he uh, casts out a demon or he'll heal somebody. Well, he could do that any day of the week, but he does it on the Sabbath. Well, why does he do it on the Sabbath? He does it on the Sabbath because it's a political act. He's, he's doing it like it's basically the equivalent of civil disobedience, right? I'm going to do this. This is illegal. And by doing this, that's illegal. It's going to cause this public national discourse that we need to have around the corruption of our religious system or the political system or whatever. And that's just right down the board. You know, if you, if you look at what Jesus did, he was like that all the time. It seems like... I don't know. I I wrestle with this question in my mind sometimes with churches being more or less political. Mm -hmm. um, if they're, because I think you see a lot of potentially unhealthy stuff um, spoken from a pulpit, you know, spoken from a stage in some church. Um, and that might be some podunk Arkansas town that might be, you know, that might be, Nashville, Tennessee, that might be New York City. Um, and you, <clears throat> in my mind, it just, it seems as if everybody today has an opinion on something. Everybody has some commentary on what's going on politically. Um, and when, when people place spiritual authority um, behind some sort of political, particular political stance, it seems like it can get dangerous, which I, <clears throat> I wrestle with, um, because, and this may not be what you're saying at all. Um, but it seems as though when you harness a spiritual authority and then tie it to a political position, it seems like you people can have the ability to leverage their power in such a way that is unhelpful um, and maybe hurtful for some people because um, I've seen it happen before, you know? Yeah. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Um, and then I also understand at the same... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of my f uh, favorite phrases in Latin is... Um, abusus non tolit proprium usus. That the abuse of something doesn't disallow its pro appropriate use. So just because some, like say preachers, are partisan from the pulpit, and that's hurtful, that doesn't mean that therefore the Christian faith has nothing to say or shouldn't say anything appropriately about our shared political life, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's like a fundamental thing. And maybe that's one of the reasons why that so churches get so quietist is they see how people have gotten it wrong. So out of fear that they would get it wrong too, or not wanting to be like the ones who've gotten it wrong, then they don't do anything at all. But I don't think that's the best path. And it may also be just a, when I was listening to you, I was thinking, I wonder when you say political, if you actually mean partisan, because there's a difference between 
partisanship and being political because political is about the polis like the good of the city the good of the community and what are we going to corporately do together for the good of that community Mm. and i think christianity is inherently political on that uh, definition the challenge to any christian leader to make sure that you aren't part being um I mean, this gets tricky. You also have to be a citizen. So sometimes you're going to have to be partisan. You're going to have to take a side. You're going to go to the voting booth. You can't just go walk in there and say like, well, I'm just generally Christian and political, so I'm just going to vote in general. You have to choose a candidate. It has to be a Democrat or Republican or whatever. But um, so one thing is the, the whole confusion, I think, that we have in our discourse around the difference between partisan and political. Um, I don't think you can get out of being political as a Christian because Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. <laughs> pretty political. That's statement pretty political, right there. I mean, if, whatever you want to think the kingdom of God is, the the choice of that word is already a like a governmental or legal structure of a certain type, hmm. and it's and he's proposing a structure, a kingdom that's alternative to the kingdoms of this world. Probably the best Christian political stuff is stuff that to a certain degree transcends all the partisan sides and gets at the deeper, you know, um, issues like, um, you know, a great quote from Walter Brueggemann is basically like the, the issue, um, is that, that what Christians have done is rather than live their discipleship and live their baptism, they've bought into this shallow, definition of Christian that's basically a little bit uh, patriotism, a little bit consumerism, a little bit, uh, you know, like a list of things that really shapes us and forms us. Mm -hmm. So the call to be political or public in the church is a call to try to figure out how to not be that, kind of this like mix of all these it's really, it's the new paganism. So it's the same thing that the early church was calling people out of. Okay, if you're going to be part of this community, it's going to look different than the pagan culture that you were part of. And here's some of the ways that it's going to look different and teach people that and and then energize them or help them commit to that. And that's probably one of the reasons why Lent is shaped the way it is. It's like you can't do that in one day. Hmm. You may have a fighting chance of doing it a little better if you do it for 40 days in a row. Right. right. Like, so how does that look? I guess, um, I guess from, from your perspective, how, how are you and how are, how is uh, good shepherd all, um, kind of resisting this new paganism, I guess. So are there any active steps you're taking or, um, I guess another way to put it, um, what are you doing politically, I guess, as an institution, how are you using, um, Good Shepherd, or just your own voice mm-hmm. um, in your community now, like in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that I would say that you you might see our faith community do that is um, that's like this. You know, uh, a really good example would be last summer um, at the Pride Parade in Fayetteville, which has become a pretty big parade. Um, the largest float at the Pride Parade was, um, can you guess? Your float? No. There was one that was bigger than ours. No. 
Uh, this is a fun little game here oh we're man, playing. This is a fun game. You should be able to guess this just because I said largest. Walmart. Oh. Of course. <laughs> of course. How did I not put that together? Come on, Peyton. It's fine. Yeah, Come it's on. okay because Walmart's has a pretty strong uh, agenda around this. Right. Um, and so they had a big, big float. And the second largest float in the Pride Parade at in here in Fayetteville was Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Okay. And... Uh, you know it just was it's become a big part of of who we are we we very publicly and regularly say that we not only welcome lgbt people into the life of our church but that we actually not only we go we go beyond that because there's a lot of churches will say that anybody can come to their church but then you'll find out once you're there that like Oh, but you can't serve on our church council, or you can't teach Sunday mm-hmm. school, or blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. So that you got special rules because my sexual orientation is different than the the heteronormative one. In our community, we have a lot of leadership and a lot of welcome, and we try to fix any ways that we're still being exclusive or excluding people of different gender identities and sexual orientations. And so then, just showing up there and being there becomes this. Uh, other way and it it's uh <laughs> it it's uh it's intriguing to watch the other other communities response to it you know it, it, it you almost don't have to say anything at all just by showing up interesting and and being there has a different you know it says it says everything um so that's one um i think on average we've got a lot of people who get involved in community stuff so we have a lot of people who like say lead nonprofits or volunteer with social service organizations in the Fayetteville, Northwest Arkansas area. How was that? I, I'm just wondering how all of that began. Is it all coincidental that these people that were really passionate about like nonprofit work, like came to Good Shepherd or, you know, was it just kind of a natural upbringing of the congregation? It's a really I, good question. Yeah. I don't know. And I'm not, I mean, sure, I'm sure there's lots of other churches that have nonprofit leaders and stuff too. So I don't want yeah. to overstate this, but statistically, we just have a lot. Um, I don't know. It seems to me probably if you have those commitments and you work in that area, then maybe our church becomes a good spiritual fit for you. So maybe you come to us for that reason. Hmm. Um, but we really also try to foster this kind of, we really try to foster a culture that says, like, if God has put it on your heart to focus on this area of social ministry, we're going to find ways to support you in doing that. And we very much have a culture of you're free to do that. Uh, like a great example would be um, the Little Free Pantry, which I don't know if you've seen the Little Free Pantry or know what it is. Uh, um, Jessica McClard put the Little Free Pantry up on our driveway a couple of summers ago, and she didn't even ask. <laughs> She just, one day I was out, I was here like a Memorial Day weekend and I look out and there's people putting a little free pantry on our driveway and I'm like, what is that? And I go over and it was Jessica, it was far enough away, I couldn't see. And she just was like, I was going to put it up at home and then I thought I'd be more visible here. So we just decided to put it up here. And then it became this, like within that year, I mean, if you know the story at all, it was like, there are now little free pantries on every continent and... Hmm. all over the world and whatever. She did this amazing double launch of the pantry with a social media Hmm. presence that was really, really great. Well, I think we just have a culture that says, like, mostly it's like permission giving and 
you can you can go ahead and do this. You don't have to, not everything has to be funneled through the senior pastor or whatever. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you in the middle of that. Um, so you're talking about ways you're politically interacting. So one is just by inclusion in leadership, and two is by um, nonprofit work and being engaged. I mean, is there anything else specifically that you wanted to say? Well, and then the other thing that really raised our, uh, that made a lot of more people aware of Good Shepherd is because we uh, started Canopy out of here. And um, that was another example where you can't, so this, this is actually a really good test case on your question about the political. So we started Canopy because there wasn't any direct refugee resettlement happening in Arkansas. Um, Catholic Charities was bringing in some family reconnects every year, maybe 12 to 15 people would get reconnected to a family member somewhere in the state and they would come in that way, but there was not direct refugee resettlement, which would be like new families or people coming from places where they don't have a relative already in Arkansas. And so, um, because, uh, Lutherans have a, a, a strong, uh, refugee resettlement organization, LIRS, we were able to work together with them to develop a local branch of LIRS, which we then created as a separate nonprofit canopy in Northwest Arkansas, it got that launched. And you, the only way you can do that, you know, the only way you can resettle refugees is you have to work with the state department and a national uh, agency like LIRS. So it requires relationships between these different kinds of organizations. And the average Christian wants to do the hands-on thing. So we had tons of people who were like, I want to help refugees, especially when the Syrian refugee crisis was strongly in the news. Mm-hmm. And so people would show up and they want, they want to help. They want to give something to somebody or even welcome them into their home or whatever. And th- that's all great. That's great. And and what I'm going to say next, to be really clear, there's nothing wrong with that commitment. But the only way you will have refugees come to Arkansas is if you navigate the political conversation. Hmm. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So first, that's an organizational or bureaucratic thing, right? So that's what we worked on. But it's this last year... uh, with the Muslim ban and the refugee pause, it meant that our organization, which resettled 50 refugees last year, hasn't seen any come in this year yet, even though we were supposed to have 75 individuals come to the state because a person who's been elected to the highest seat in our country has you know, said, we're going to put a pause on this refugee resettlement, and he has complete power and authority to do that. Unless you can figure out some kind of political leverage to get him to turn it around and go in another direction. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do then? So your choices are kind of like to acquiesce and say like, oh, okay, I guess those of us that are feeling a call from God to help refugees and provide them a safe place to come. Well, let's just all acquiesce. Clearly, we just can't do this right now. So let's move on to other things. Or you're going to have to take a political position and then act on it. So Canopy is doing that right now. So since we don't have the admissions coming right now, we're working on ramping up our conversations with elected officials. So we've got like a group that's going to go up to D.C. next month and has set up meetings with Steve Womack and John Bozeman and Tom Cotton. And we're going to say, 
uh, and you can go down and you can see the little art installation that that Canopy has done at St. Martin's Episcopal. Uh, where are where are they? they there's like a, an empty table set up on the front. Mm-hmm. You, Juan, you know, because we have, we, we have the names. We know who's supposed to be coming. Oh, wow. They're not here. One gentleman who was supposed to come died in the camp mm-hmm. of an illness that would have been treatable if he would have made it here. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. so it's like, so the care, the welcome the refugee, all the things that are the commitments of a Christian... On, in this point, we can't do without also taking that kind of like public action. And then how, how far are you going to take that? Well, we know politicians mostly only make decisions or change their mind based on real public pressure. Right. They need cover. Mm-hmm. So then to get that done, you know, so there's one group of people, one group of Christians who buy stuff in stocks and apartment so the refugee family can arrive and resettle there. But to get the refugee family there, there's another group of Christians that has to do the cover thing and the pressure thing and the, or whatever. Hmm. Fascinating. That, I mean, that is that imagination of, like you said, political involvement goes so far beyond some sort, like you said, some sort of partisan um, execution of one policy. You know, it it's an involvement that is feet on the ground, in and out, daily, talking to representatives. You know, it's not like when the day arrives, we vote for the guy who wears the right color tie. Or, right. You're right, you yeah. know. I just find it really interesting how um how it's not common to take a step back and look at the institution rather than the individual problem that you see right in front of you because that's so much of what we do in other scenarios you know if something's producing something you know bad or not as great you don't just keep adapting the product you go back to the machine creating it whatever it may be in whatever your profession is and it's interesting how we kind of limit that thinking to outside of the political arena or outside of our social issues that we care about. Um, so that's fascinating to me. So I, I kind of hate that that's rare. Like what I'm hearing is kind of more rare um, than what I'm used to. Yeah. Well, yeah, and there's the classic allegory that people tell about how if you're standing by a river and you are pulling people out of the river, have you heard this story? Mm-hmm. If you're standing by the river and you keep pulling drowning people out of the river, the first one, the second one, you help the drowning people and you get them out of the river. But if they keep showing up day after day, at some point you ask yourself, what is going on up the river <laughs> that has yeah. people being thrown in and being drowned? And so you go, you have to go up river and and address the like the root kind of cause. Um, so yeah, so a campaign like the one that we're um, participating in this year, the New Poor People's Campaign. Uh, here in Arkansas, um, is a re- it's a revival of the Poor People's Campaign that Martin Luther King uh, called for about a month before he was uh, murdered. And he had called for a campaign where poor peoples, people that represent the groups that have been affected by what he said were the three evils of, um, you, you know, like our neoliberal era, the war economy, uh, poverty, and, and systemic racism, mm. that... He, the the call was to bring those groups of people to D.C. for this big poor people's campaign, and that was the next thing he was organizing, and then he was 
shot. And so that kind of fell apart because the national attention shifted to just the grief over the assassinations and whatever. So this new poor people's campaign that William Barber out of North Carolina is calling for and that um, I think it's like 35 or 40 states now are participating in this spring. All those groups are saying basically, okay, we need to work at addressing the stuff that's upriver and um, naming those things. So it's those three things still that we think are still front and center in terms of what Christians need to, or people, any people of faith really need to address that are big problems across our country and in our state. Um, and then also adding uh, ecological devastation to the set of concerns and framing those in moral terms. So a lot of times right now, politicians who are, who, who are leading our country on these things are really lots of people who are leading our country aren't necessarily framing all of this specifically in moral categories they're framing them in like self-interest categories or economic categories or that kind of thing and so but the how do you frame it in moral terms um and one of the ways you can do that is by centering those voices so making sure that you get to the to the space where they can be heard the people who are negatively affected by our military machine you know so like one of my members was down for the launch of the new poor people's campaign in Little Rock on Monday, and he spoke as a veteran who's now living with, you know, anxiety and PTSD and all the things that he experiences having served in a theater. And then the failure of our system to provide the resources that he needs um, to thrive now. Um, And in fact, on some levels, even the manipulation that happens, you know, so like, why do we have an opioid epidemic? You know, well, one of the reasons is because we have all these people that we sent overseas to fight in these theaters and they come back and then doctors prescribe them over prescribe them pain. I mean, it's all of that is like, it's really hard to figure out. And this is, it's always harder to work against systems, but so important because otherwise you're acting as if it's just his individual fault that he ended up in that situation, but it's much bigger than him. It's like economic and it's military and it's all these things. Man, it, it sucks, and it's fascinating that those are the still the three, those are still the three things that we have to continue to work on. You know, the number of people in the United, the percentage of people in the United States below the poverty line is higher now than the year that Martin Luther King called for the Poor People's Campaign. I would have assumed that the widening wage gap, the widening, you know, upper class, lower class, right, you know, disappearing middle class. And the the what systemic racism looks like has shifted. It's no longer you can't eat at this restaurant. Now it's we incarcerate black bodies and farm them. Yeah, we yeah, oh, etc. I kind of like to kind of shift it a little bit back to Lent, but within terms, uh, within relation to uh, these issues that kind of plague our country. So um, one thing about the Lent season that characterizes it is lament and like you said repentance and so how does i I was talking to zach about this the other day i i find it interesting that people don't know how to lament anymore and people don't know how to mourn necessarily Uh um it's always an inconvenience and you know as americans we think we're invincible and forever and very individualistic and so um so it is very much a discipline to step back and be reminded of death, be reminded of our 
um, finitude and our mistakes. And so I guess how can somebody integrate, um, I guess, kind of everything we're talking about today. So talking about um, the season of Lent coming up, but also being politically involved, being politically challenged um, to make that, to take that step and to maybe become political if they're not. That's a big question. I apologize already. <laughs> well, a lot of people are tired and grieving uh, right now. Um, they're, they're tired and grieving for the kind of the normal things of human existence, you know, so people have the flu or cancer there's all kinds of things that cause grief on that level and then there's injustices so people are you know struggling to get out of poverty and can't or whatever so there's those kinds of levels where people are struggling and grieving and i feel like the thing that has really ramped up of late is bruce rogers vaughn the book i mentioned earlier he talks about this too is like there's this third order suffering he calls it the new chronic and it's this just this general sense of dis-ease that a lot of people experience now um, that he identifies as being a byproduct of the kind of the the suffering that neoliberalism causes. It's like this hard to name pain and suffering, which I think manifests in many people as like it comes up come basically like this: I can see what's wrong. I can't identify what I can do about it. I feel great pain that I can see what's wrong and I can't do anything about it and mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. And I feel bad doing nothing, but it exhausts me to try to do something because it always feels like it doesn't do anything. You know, that, that kind of general right. thing. So in terms of grief and Lent, um, one thing that the season does give you space to do is something that's still always a core thing of Christianity, which is you can be forgiven right? So Lent is a penitential season. You can come and you can say, I feel like I haven't done what I should do. And you can receive forgiveness for that. You can say, um, I put my energy into the wrong things, you know, or I did the wrong things, or I've been committed to this wrong cause. And you can, you can turn and, and be forgiven. And the really kind of amazing thing about that, about the season, is ultimately repentance is not about um, trying to make you feel guilty. Because guilt is like the least energizing thing in the world, right? Like what good does there ever come out of long-term guilt? Um, what repentance is, is uh, creating a, a way for people to turn around and do something different. You know, so when somebody tells you that you're being a white supremacist, you know, or you're 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 um, living your privilege or whatever, um, what you what people like to do is say something like, "Oh, you're just making me feel guilty," or they will wallow in the guilt or the self consciousness mm. of that. But that doesn't accomplish anything good. What does accomplish something good is when you can honestly accept that critique. Oh, you're right. I think I was living out of my privilege, and then you can say, "Okay, I'm sorry." Uh, I can see that and then hear that forgiveness and then turn and do something new, right? Mm. Like that's real change. Yeah. And Lent is designed, at least in part, to kind of create the space for that, for people to hone in on those ways as a community or as an individual that they've sinned and fallen short 
although that's a whole other conversation, what we think sin might be uh, in this way of thinking, right? Um, but anyway, people are still looking for forgiveness because they know that it can like energize them for new action. Hmm. I've heard, I think a lot of people maybe, maybe uh, the understanding that I grew up with was, you know, like repentance is a, like, I've done something evil and you must ask forgiveness for the thing that you've done. But I've also heard in a way of, like you've put it, where repentance is returning your eyes to the path that we are called to be on, you know, uh -huh. it's a, rather than some sort of like a beating of the chest and begging for forgiveness. It's a reorientation of our lives and movement in a different direction, um, which I think we all need, you know, whether you're in a Christian tradition or not, I think we all, um, you know, should do the hard work of looking at our lives and seeing where is it that I need to refocus my attention on whatever that thing is that I feel like I'm compelled to do in the world. Um, so I, I love that, that definition of repentance as a, you know, maybe as opposed to, or in place of a beating of the chest, feeling guilty and being ashamed of who you are and living in a space of shame. Cause I have a tendency to do that when you talk about living out of your privilege, that sort of thing, or this white guilt that is drawn into the conversation. So often I have a, uh, I feel like I live out of that a lot, a, uh, white guilt or, you know, I didn't do anything, but I feel bad about something that was done or that does exist in the world. Um, so I think it's really great that you bring that up and talk about that. Cause I, I think we all do need to take some time and do some assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I'd be remiss to not say this because it's so focal to Lent that that turning and direction that, that there is a center to it in the Lenten season and it's the cross. So like core to Christianity is that, there, that there's a journey and you're setting your face in a specific direction and very central to that season is that, you know, Lent begins, Jesus finally, he's been ministering around the Galilean region, but the, to all the texts that we start reading now are the ones where Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem. He knows he's, the time is near, he goes there and doesn't turn back. And that's a big part of the story of Jesus that I think um, has to be centered, which is that he, what the one of the remarkable things about Jesus, one of the reasons why he's looked at as as you know as so faithful is that he set his face to that mission that he knew he was on, and then didn't waver. Hmm. Um, so. Another thing about grief and pain, unfortunately, this has to be said, I think, if you're going to think as a Christian, is it's unavoidable. That if you're going to follow this way, you're going to suffer. And um, that's just a 
that's that's a that's a big part of the narrative that Lent kind of like reminds you of. And there's promise or hope on the other side of that. You know, there's hope beyond hope or whatever. But uh, Jesus ends up dying on the cross, essentially hopeless, and then God raises Jesus from the dead, right? I mean, so it wasn't like, unfortunately, I think sometimes Christians tell this story as if Jesus always knew he was going to get set free. He just kind of had to like softly be, uh, you know, temporarily posted noted up there on the cross and then within a couple hours he's down and whatever no the dude really died you know and he he suffered all the way along and god raised him up and so we have to tell the whole story but the center of it for lent is the cross and and christ's like faithful commitment to that Hmm. and what killed him was that he was political yeah yeah when we all get back around to it it's because he was you know healing people on a on sun or on saturday but on the sabbath on the day of rest or he was saying things like the kingdom of god is at hand and challenging the rule of caesar or you know uh whatever he was killed because he was perceived as a threat to the governing authorities and the religious authorities mm-hmm. yeah yeah do you want to talk about good shepherd what's going on events coming up or that sort of thing beyond the Wait. Well, I could just tell you when the stuff is that I was talking about. Like, so we have Ash Wednesday next Wednesday, which is, happens to be Valentine's Day too. Um, <laughs> Six thirty service. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I had a friend who posted up in in Minnesota, though. She's a pastor of a large uh, congregation up there, and she said, um, "If you really want to observe uh, Valentine's Day, Ash Wednesday is a good way to do it. If you want to know how much you are loved." Hmm. Uh, right. And since Valentine's Day is not fun for everybody, uh, maybe it's a kind of a fortuitous thing. So Ash Wednesday, uh, we do Wednesday night soup suppers and the evening services every Wednesday night of Lent. And then uh, we <clears throat> do a Maundy Thursday service on the Holy Week, which is the Thursday before Easter. That's like a service where you... we. You, you really focus in on the meal that Jesus shared with the disciples in the upper room. And we do a, like a ritual foot washing, like anybody who wants to come up can participate in the foot washing at that service. And then on Good Friday, we do prayer on the cross. So we set up like a, it's kind of like a cross box in our sanctuary. where People can light candles and offer prayers as we meditate on the crucifixion of Christ. We do the Easter vigil on Saturday night. It's a big blowout. We start with a big bonfire out in the parking lot. Come in and do this like service with all the baptisms. And then Easter morning. And uh, I that's going to be an exhausting weekend for me because I just uh, found out I'm preaching the... Have you heard of the Mount Sequoia outdoor sunrise service that they do at Mount Sequoia? I have, here? yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm preaching at that on that morning. So I'm just really going to see what my voice is like by the 11 o'clock service on uh-huh. Sunday morning, because we do this set Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then three services on Sunday morning, so it'll be a little marathon. Mm-hmm. And is the Mount Sequoia, where is, sorry, is that a park like out in... No, here? it's a camp or retreat center up on the hill there above town. Okay. And there's a big cross there and an outdoor, like, outdoor sanctuary, like mm-hmm. with benches and they do events up there periodically but they've been doing this sunrise service up there for i don't even know how long like really long time Mm -hmm. it's an ecumenical thing and um i i'm 
it's going to be, it should be fine. It's always been Methodist preachers in the past, but now Mount Sequoia became its own independent entity last year. So they're going to try to start having a rotation of clergy from around the community. Okay. Preach at it. Excellent. So you thought this was early. It'll be 6.30 a.m. up on the hill. (laughs) I'm just a wimp because it's the weekend. But Uh anyway. You did see how I brought that all the way around. Oh, you did. (laughs) We did. We've arrived back where we started. (laughs) Well, Pastor Clint, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a good time. Yeah, thank you. Man, one of the most powerful parts, I guess, in that whole conversation was that art piece that Clint, Pastor Clint talked about. And just the fact that Canopy Northwest Arkansas was expecting uh, people to immigrate and, you know, take refuge in the United States and none of them were able to come in. Yeah. And the fact that even one of them died of a preventable illness here, like that's, that's kind of speaks volumes to um, just, just the gravity of this kind of involvement Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also thinking of kind of the correlations between, you know, having an active faith life, but not letting it stop just in your head, but in your actions, in your interactions with the community, in your political life or, uh, who you vote for or how you get politically involved. Do you go to DC? Like that, all of that is really interesting to me. Um, or even. It, it even affects how you spend your free time. Like mm-hmm. it's not just how you vote, but it's how you spend your time to affect like the community politics of what's going on. It's, it's investing your time into things that create a better community. Like it's, um, it's an investment of time as you, I know we say vote with your dollar a lot, but it's like voting with your hours um, and that's getting a little cliche on the, on, I'm going to figure out a different <laughs> way to say that, but, um, it's well, like, but for example, like we, we on this podcast vote with our time or whatever the phrase we're trying to use instead yeah, of voting, yeah. um, because we see value in our community and we want to highlight it and we want to take the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we spend our capital, whether it's like financial, which it's not much on this. It's mainly a time commitment. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how you're right. It's more of an allocation of resources that aren't just, you know, I, I support this person with my words or with my vote or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, I mean, the fact that that ideology is played out in that faith community, seeing like the free pantry, come out of that even is kind of a neat way of seeing people taking initiative about the things they care about and investing themselves into creating a better Northwest Arkansas in a very grassroots most of the time way they well, well, imagine a, something and then they create that thing. Well, and it's interesting tying it back in with Lent because the idea of Lent is being uh, like mindful of death, it's to discipline oneself, it's to um, remove oneself from what's comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's so much of the community work at play kind of discussed here. It's, um, you know, you could be spending your time 
just not in like a negative way, but living kind of selfishly, just, you know, trying to do things for yourself. Um, or you could try to make change and seek justice in your community or whatever it may be. Um, and that takes sweat that takes work, um, and sacrifice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All around good interview. Yeah. I enjoyed it. All right. So what's it time for Zach? It's time for Ozark Superstitions. Oh, man. That's my new intro. No, it's not. I'm not even going <laughs> to joke like it is. Yeah, it's not. Ozark Superstitions with our dear friend Vance Randolph mm. um, from his book, Ozark Superstitions. Aptly named. Aptly named, um, written and published in the 1940s. Um, so very old material we're working with. We've talked about it before. If you haven't heard one of these bad boys before, we did an introduction thing on the Jaranali episode with Leisure List. Uh, so if you want an introduction to this, that's where you should go check it out. Um, but today we are going to be talking about the arrival of spring. Uh, we've had some really nice days here lately. We've had seen some days up in the 60s and 70s even, but then the next day it turns to be like 36 degrees or something like that, um, which seems to be pretty normal for this area. People experience like pretty broad, sweeping, changing weather. It's because we're in a landlocked area, and I'm sorry, real fast, I gotta say, anybody who's like, hey, my specific city Oh man, if you don't like the weather, just wait a week. I I hate that so much. It's uh-huh. because we're all in a landlocked environment around the same climate and we're all experiencing the same changes because that's just what happens when you live landlocked in the United States. So sorry people, your city is not special because, you know, your weather changes all the time because everybody's weather changes all the time. Hey, drag it to drop some meteorological knowledge on him, Peyton. I'm just, oh man, I'm just tired of everyone being like, my city is such a special snowflake, but I'm because it's the weather. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Anyway, sorry. Let's get back to the Ozark superstition. Yeah. I'm ready yeah. for this. Okay. So, uh, if you didn't know, there's a deep controversy in the Ozarks as it turns out that I was not aware of until I read this section of Vance Randolph's book. Um, and it is concerns the observance of a certain date. And that date is February 14th. Okay. What falls on February 14th, Peyton? Valentine's day. What else falls on fe- February 14th? Uh, well, Ash Wednesday was coincidentally on February sure. 14th. Um, I'm grasping at straws here. What am I missing? Well, traditionally in the Ozarks, if you celebrated the tradition that you're a part of, Peyton, you would be celebrating Groundhog's Day Oh, on February 14th. I honestly forgot. It's fine. Uh, I think most people today, it's thought of that Groundhog's Day falls, or Groundhog Day falls on February 2nd. That is where we live and exist February 2nd. We turn on our TVs to find out if Phil the Groundhog sees its shadow or not, um, and whether or not we're going to have six more weeks of winter or not. But Zach, you just said February 2nd. 
I thought we were talking about February 14th. Right. So that's that's where the controversy lies, which we'll get into. Um, but just starting out this conversation, I think it's incredibly fascinating that as funny as these Ozark people sound, talking about their superstitions and storytelling things that we laugh at a lot here, um, or maybe even mock, we should remember that we allow a groundhog to tell us once a year how much longer it's going to be cold. And everybody just like is generally kind of cool with it. The groundhog has a lot of power in this world. <laughs> it does. Um, and yet this is a sort of like nationally recognized superstition that even the president takes part in come February 2nd. Um, but it's something that we all kind of buy into. I mean, maybe jokingly, it's something enjoyable to do, but it does revolve around a weird superstition of let's let this animal tell us how the weather's going to go. Hmm. Okay. So traditionally how the legend goes um, is on the your given date of Groundhog Day, whether that's February 2nd or February 14th, um, you watch for the groundhog. And if the groundhog comes out um, and sees that the sun is out, he will go back to bed, and you can presume that we will have six more weeks of winter. Um, if the groundhog comes out and it's cloudy and doesn't see the sun, he decides it's time to get up and winter will be ceasing soon, if not immediately. Okay. Um, so I think in our modern imagination it's does the groundhog see its shadow um just remember that sunny day means more winter cloudy day means winter's over okay um just as we move forward because i won't be talking about the shadow so much as we will be talking about sunny day cloudy day got it cool okay um so i've got just some assortment of quotes from people um, that are commenting, writing in letters to the editor, to their local newspaper, to talk about this new invention for most Ozarkers that February 2nd is Groundhog Day because so many of them swear and have lived in the area for, you know, in some cases, 80 years and swear up and down that Groundhog Day has always been on February 14th. It's never been on February 2nd. And these people moving into the area are absolutely wrong. And they are they are losing their minds writing into newspapers saying, these foreigners coming in here can't tell us how to celebrate Groundhog Day because they don't know. Because realistically, like Ozarkers lived, lived their lives in and out, like day in, day out watching for signs from nature and weather and we're pretty accurate about a lot of it um but now you're dealing in the wrong wheelhouse you foreigners because <laughs> like this is where we meddle this is our playground i'm sorry i i'm just i'm hung up on just the tradition just as a whole at the moment <laughs> i i'm sorry it's just all hitting me all at once that this is a superstition at all i don't even know what a groundhog looks like where do they live it's like a it's like a beaver ish, but is not. It, is it yeah. like? But is there a prairie dog? It's like a like, fat prairie dog. Okay. See, see, this is my issue with it. I just I know nothing, so I don't even have a strong opinion. 
Have you seen the movie Groundhog Day with nope. Bill Murray? Okay. Uh-uh. Classic. Got to check it out. Okay. Okay. But no, tell me more about this controversy so I can pick a side. Yeah, okay. So this is this is fun. I'm just going to pick out some pull some quotes from this because the difference of opinion is really interesting and we can talk about why this is an interesting controversy. Okay. So this is a quote from Vance Randolph. He writes, quote, Uncle Jack Short, Galena, Missouri, told me in 1944 that he'd never heard of February 2nd being called Groundhog Day until after 1900. Jack Short says, quote, February 14th is the real old-time Groundhog Day, he said. Mr. Short was born up on Cane Creek, not far from Galena, in 1864. His father came from Tennessee in the 1840s, end quote. So as far back in this man's like familial memory, back to the 1840s, Groundhog Day was celebrated on February 14th in the South. Okay, okay. that's Tennessee, that's Arkansas, that's okay. Missouri. Okay. Um, so in 1933, Vance Randolph found himself in Greene County, Missouri. I, this story is kind of funny to me. Um, on February 2nd of that year, so like the foreigner's Groundhog Day and what we today recognize as Groundhog Day. On February 2nd of that year, the Groundhog determined that there would be six more weeks of winter. It was sunny on February 2nd. Okay. But on February 14th of the same year, it was cloudy. Oh, and man. thus, the Groundhog did not see a shadow and stayed, stuck around. Um, and so Vance Randolph writes, quote, also, I love the way Ozarkers refer to people who are moving in. Um, this is the quote. The furriners. Can you spell that? Yep. F-U-R-R-I-N-E-R-S. Uh, it took me a while to figure out what that meant <laughs> for the longest time because I was, I was thinking, furriners, are they like hunters? Are they like trappers? Furriners. It's just mainly because Vance Randolph is very phonetic. Just here's what he here's what he hears and writes it down. So maybe he didn't know, and then we're now interpreting it now. There's a lot of that in this book. Okay. There's a lot of that where he's like, Yeah, people talk about these horses and something about shelling horses, and I still don't know what shelling horses is. <laughs> but I'm writing it down. Okay. Um so anyway, he says, quote, the furners remember, February second, it was sunny. Six more weeks of winter, February 14th, it was cloudy. Okay. Um, and he writes, quote, The furners prepared for six weeks of cold weather, but the old-timers shucked their sheepskin coats and began to spade up their garden patches. So the new people to town were like, oh, we got to bear down for six more weeks of winter. And the old-timey people were like, all right, it's time to go. Spring is on its way. <laughs> Vance Randolph failed to record if winter ended. No, that ruins it. I know. No. We'll never know. Um, but like I said, people have like different thoughts on this, but a controversy started to stir around the decision of what this date would be. As like time progressed, as more people moved in, people got like legitimately upset about when Groundhog Day was. Well, let me, th let me think of situations modern day. So yeah, food trucks are closed during the winter. Okay. What if the food trucks saw the groundhog 
uh, wait, is it not see its shadow? No, if they saw its shadow, then that means it's more winter. Yes. So what if the groundhog saw its shadow and they're like, hey, we're going to stay closed for more weeks in winter. Okay. Meanwhile, the populace really wants their food. And so they're like, hey, this is going to wrap up. And so they really want the food. Yeah. Be it. Yeah. If I can't get my crepes Paul out of a truck. That's right. Then I'm going to be angry. Yes. Good so point. now I'm starting to catch the anger. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. with you now. So I love this man. This next quote of this man. Uh, Vance Randolph evidently is just talking to a man outside a courthouse. And this is what the man says about um, this date. He says, quote, what's all this talk about February 2nd being Groundhog Day? It was always February 14th until late years. Suppose the darn hog has caught the spirit of the times and is stepping on the gas, working under high pressure and starting his year 12 days earlier than in the good old days when men and groundhogs both took time to live in a rational manner. (laughs) 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 The, the, The idea of... A groundhog, like, realizing, oh, urban life is on its way. I should get with the times and punch my clock two weeks early to get to work. Is that how nature works? No, it's not. But I love this imagination of... Because this is why the controversy is so interesting. Is because what this man says, he's saying, evidently the groundhog that we held in tradition to be like an image of when does spring end, when does the work for towards summer begin. Evidently, these foreigners are coming into our town saying, no, we don't go to work in the middle of February. We go to work earlier. We go to work Mm. at the beginning of February. So you see this like growing tension of like the old ways coming up and bumping up against like the new ways of not just tradition and celebrating it or observing dates, but also work ethic or um, what is like a modern life supposed to look like? Do we, do we act like our fathers and forefathers did where, where he says back in the good old days, men and groundhogs, took their time and lived in a rational manner. They it's did so sp- much bigger than the groundhog. Yeah. They spent their time with rest. There was a season of rest and that was winter for most of these people who lived off the land, you know? Um, so when there's this group of urbanites and non-native to the Ozarks stepping in and demanding that we push groundhog day two weeks earlier, you see a lot of people get upset because it's, emblematic of the day of the urbanization of the rural man interesting and that coincides with like the 1900s i would think because you have the invention of the automobile you have like more products of products of invention Mm -hmm. and um 1900s and this is like 1936 or so when he gets this quote but the turn what was spoken about was the 1900s, like mm-hmm. the turn of the century was when this happened. So quite peculiar. Yeah. I'm going to move on just to get to like where this kind of culminates, mm. why it's controversial and we see like why it's controversial, but this is the response that most people or that a lot of people took. This is an editorial comment from the Springfield 
Springfield Leader in February of 1936. It says, quote, Groundhog saw no shadow here. Okay, so this is this is soon after this is like February sixth or something. This is soon after the modern understanding of Groundhog Day. It says, quote, Groundhog saw no shadow here, and a large faction says it makes no difference whether this hog saw a shadow or not on February second, as the correct date for such an observation is February 14th. The 2nd of February faction claim that those who stand by the 14th have mixed up the date with St. Valentine's Day. A great many people are neutral on the subject or pretend to be in order to avoid making enemies. Huh. Some people remain neutral on it or pretend to be so they don't make enemies. And it's such a prominent argument that mm-hmm. some people are like, I'd rather not talk about it. Yeah, and Springfield... We don't talk about re- religion or politics or Groundhog Day around the Thanksgiving table. Yeah, because people were getting angry about it. Um, and then, evidently, at the time, Springfield had a population of about 60,000 people, and they were diverse enough, and it was a big enough metroplex for the time um, that you had like traditionalists, like people who'd lived there, for a hundred years. And then you had people who are non-native to the area who were mostly your meteorologists or newspaper reporters who had an education that were moving into the area for work, but didn't have this sense of like tradition. And so it even says that, um, mo- quote, most of the weekly papers in the back County villages do not even mention the controversy, controversy about the date, probably because they didn't want to upset their readership. Wow. Strange. Huh. Um, Of course, um, Deacon Dobbins of the Oregon Sentinel, which is also in Missouri, wrote, rationally so, uh, evidently he, quote, kept careful records of Groundhog Day for more than 40 years and discredited the Seer's Shadow prophecy in his section of the country for either February 2nd or February 14th. And he said, it's all baloney. I've done my homework for 40 years. Neither of them are accurate. Oh. Um, so I, th- you like the mounting tension of this is interesting as it relates to like this social bumping up of ideologies against one another. Um, we don't, we see some of this today. Um, like with the suggestion that we change Columbus Day, like change the name of Columbus Day, mm. um, whether we should or should not celebrate Columbus Day. It's a it's different, but the outrage seen around whether or not people celebrate Columbus Day, like we see a mounting tension around that. I'm even thinking of President's Day because... I think you had, before you had like George Washington Day and Abe Lincoln Day and all these prominent presidents' days, but then we just grouped them all under President's Day. Mm-hmm. Some people were probably angry about that. Yeah, which kind of like makes the whole Groundhog Day seem not so ridiculous. Mm. Like, because the effect of like mandating of a certain date being recognized nationally or locally like means something socially to people. Mm -hmm. Like it affects how people imagine their nation. Um, The stance they take on Groundhog Day, 
the stance they take on Columbus Day, the stance they take on Black History Month, I'm sure when it came into being, had some sort of controversy around it, no doubt. Um, But it's the fascination of people get angry about how you determine and talk about what are our federal holidays or when do we observe them bears weight to people and maybe, maybe it should, or maybe it shouldn't. I don't know if there's a right answer to this. I'm going to go ahead and err on the side of, I don't care when Groundhog's Day is. Okay. So and I do avoid, you know, losing listenership. I think I will not pick a side on oh. this whole Groundhog Day, you know, discussion because mm-hmm. don't want to lose any listeners by saying one or the other. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you do want some sort of like actual telling sign of when spring ends or when spring begins, winter ends, Ozarkers very much in their, uh, wheelhouse have a couple different ways to tell. So I'm going to throw some your way and and see if you recognize any of these. And maybe Peyton, you can tell us if you've noticed any of these things happening. Um, and we can maybe figure out where we exist. Okay. Bring it on. Okay. Um, these are some other signs that spring is turning. Um, okay. If you see green, on a bodark tree or an Osage orange, it's a small tree. If you see it start to green, they say that that is a pretty good sign that spring is on its way. Peyton, have you seen any Osage orange trees with green on them? I cannot recall the last time I was able to identify <laughs> such a tree. Um, so that kind of sucks. Um, it speaks volumes about how bad I am at nature as a whole. Um, But seeing green on a tree as an indication that spring is around the corner, that seems to make sense for me. Yeah, but just a Bodark tree. So does that mean all the rest of them are dead? What's the deal? I don't know. I don't know what it is about the Osage Orange that... I'm going to vote, yeah, winter is not coming. Winter is not coming. Spring is? Spring is coming. Okay. Just Um, trying to be a Game of Thrones fool. I get it. Because you love Game of Thrones, Peyton. I don't. Moving on. (laughs) Okay, here's another indicator. Have you heard any frogs chirping? I've not heard any frogs chirping, though I do not live near water. Okay, fair. Well, they say that frogs chirping could be a misleading identification of spring coming because mm. though frogs may thaw out, come closer to spring, and they start chirping. Were uh, they frozen the whole time? What's the deal? They were frozen. Oh, yeah, they were. Okay, I'm going to go along with it. Maybe not. Uh, this is, like I said, once again, this, these are Ozarkers who have come up with these superstitions. Um, they do say it can be a misleading sign. Misleading sign. Um, because it is said that frogs probably freeze three or four times before spring actually shows up. So they'll thaw out and then refreeze and then thaw out and refreeze and thaw out. And if you hate the weather in the Ozarks, just wait, <laughs> wait a week and it'll change and you'll thaw right out. Stupid frogs. Get it together. Um, they say birds can be good indicators, but also not super trustworthy. Unless, unless it's in the case of the turkey buzzard. Oh, the turkey buzzard is reliable. 
Um, so if Peyton, have you seen any turkey buzzards lately? I have not. Okay. They say for sure, this is non-controversial. The spotting of a turkey buzzard, it's agreed that winter's over and spring is on its way. Okay. So furners and Ozarkers alike agree. Turkey buzzards, deaf a sign that winter is over. Yes. Okay. So keep your eyes peeled for turkey buzzards. I will. There you go. That is Ozark Superstitions, the arrival of spring, and the controversy of Groundhog Day. Well, thank you for the relevant discussion. Especially, okay, that last one, the birds being misleading, because I've seen birds out now, but I know... That they usually are frozen during the winter. Yeah, they need to (laughs) fly out. Those are the zombie ones. Um, No, it's just... I've seen them lately, and I know that it's going to get cold again because I've seen the weather, and it is bleak. So I do not trust the birds. Don't know what they're doing. So with that, that is the end of our episode. Thank you so much for getting to the end of this episode of Hey Hey NWA. If you like what we do and you haven't already liked us on the social medias, uh, come hit us up on Facebook. We are Hey Hey NWA. And on Instagram, we are Hey Hey NWA Podcast. On Patreon, we are Hey Hey NW, or wow, sorry. You messed it up this time. I didn't do it. On Patreon, we are patreon.com forward slash Hey Hey NWA. And then we have Snapchat, which is just Hey Hey NWA with no underscores or spaces. Can you tell that we are Hey Hey NWA? Yeah, we're pretty homogenous across our social media existences aka you'll be able to find us we're on a lot of things so thanks a lot for listening and have a good week we'll see you next time watch out for turkey buzzards stay classy